Good day, Crime Talk aficionados. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Let's give you a quick preview. A story of a Lyft driver that would, um, well, give everybody a little bit of pause. A minister pleads guilty to theft. Guess how much? More information coming out of the Alec Murdoch matter. One year ago today, Alec Baldwin shot Helena Hutchinson. How's that investigation coming along? The Daryl Brooks Circus continues. A House of Horror update from yesterday. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, aficionados. My name is Scott Reich. Thanks for watching. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Hit that little bell so you receive notifications. Please leave me a comment below regarding what we discussed today. And remember, you can always listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Let's get straight to the docket. So let's open the record for October 21st, 2022. If this story doesn't give everybody a little bit of pause, I do not know what will. We all need to be careful out there, ladies and gentlemen. It is a dangerous world. So a, a woman left a, a Denver bar alone and awaited vehicles they'd requested on a ride handling app. But instead of making it home, some of them alleged that they later woke up in a stranger's bed with no underwear or phone and the realization that they had been assaulted. Now, the alleged driver, John Pastor Mendoza, now faces 41 felony counts in connection with these alleged incidents. Now, Mr. Pastor Mendoza is accused of kidnapping and assaulting or attempting to assault 10 women between September of 2018 and July of 2022. Now, the public defenders who are representing Mr. Pastor Mendoza didn't respond. Uh, to request for comments, but the 41-year-old remains jailed without a bond. He is due back in court on November 4th. We'll obviously give him the presumption of innocence. Now, it is alleged that although Pastor Mendoza worked as a driver for Lyft, a company spokesperson has stated that he may have taken rides off the books since Lyft has no record of them being scheduled on the platform at that particular time. Uh, Lyft says that the behavior described is absolutely appalling and the driver has been permanently removed from the Lyft community. Lyft also stated they had been in touch with law enforcement to assist in their investigation and stand ready to provide support in any ongoing capacity. Uh, Uber put out a statement that Pastor Mendoza has never used the Uber platform to drive and has never been a driver. Investigators allege in court filings that Mr. Pastor Mendoza has a pattern of targeting seemingly intoxicated women, hailing rides alone outside clubs and bars in downtown Denver, then assaulting them in his car or at his home. Now, Lyft says it recorded more than 4,000 cases of sexual assault over three years. The first incident, investigators say, took place four years ago outside of a trendy neighborhood bar. An unnamed woman was separated from her friends before she hailed a ride by herself. She woke up the next day in an unfamiliar bed with a man that she did not know, is all according to the arrest warrant. Now, the woman who left the apartment by foot reported that her bank card, cell phone, and underwear were missing. That day, she went to the hospital for a sexual assault examination, but at the time chose to 
report what happened as a medical incident and not as a matter for law enforcement, according to the affidavit. In a similar case, a second woman reportedly being assaulted in July of 2019. After going out for drinks, she ordered an Uber ride, which was then canceled on the app, according to the warrant. The woman told authorities she later woke up in the home of an unknown man who claimed he'd found her in an alley and brought her to his place to keep her safe. She was also missing personal belongings, according to the affidavit. The woman had an evidence collection exam done and reported the incident to law enforcement. Now, in March of 2022, another woman had claimed that she had been abused in the back of a car, which she believed to be a ride-sharing service vehicle, according to the affidavit for the arrest warrant. She, too, went to the hospital for an examination, but did not wish to forward the case to law enforcement at that time, according to the investigators. Four months later, a different woman decided to head home from a bar after feeling ill. According to the court affidavit, a ride-hailing app assigned her a female driver in a blue sedan, but she entered a white car instead. Her friend saw her enter the vehicle and asked the driver to wait while they gathered the rest of the group to leave. But investigators say when they turned around, the man had driven off with her. According to the affidavit, the woman recalled a physical struggle with the driver and later awoke in her bed at home, though her underwear was missing. She suspected she'd been assaulted and reported to the hospital for an exam, requesting that law enforcement investigate. Now, detectives say the woman was the fourth to be attacked by someone all of the victims had described as a short Hispanic man with dark curly hair in his 30s and 40s. With that description and a noticeable pattern, investigators asked a bar in the area to be on the lookout for the man. Eventually, an employee at the bar sent police photos of a man who matched the description and the picture of his driver's license and car. The name on the license was John Pastor Mendoza. This is all in the affidavit for the arrest warrant. Then in August of 2022, police searched Pastor Mendoza's home where they say they found a woman's bank card and a box of 18 cell phones. Investigators trace the items back to women who'd previously reported that they had been assaulted, according to the affidavit. Investigators determined that DNA samples from three of the victims pointed to Pastor Mendoza as the suspect in those cases that summer. Victims also identified him in a photo lineup, according to the affidavit. Now, Pastor Mendoza was arrested in August, and after further investigation revealed even more victims, according to the district attorney, and he has now been charged with 41 felony counts, 10 of which are kidnapping of a victim to commit a sexual offense, 12 of the uh, sexual assault counts, 18 attempted sexual assaults, and one robbery. You need to be aware of your surroundings out there, ladies and gentlemen. And if you're going out, particularly the ladies, you travel in twos at minimum. Don't go by yourself. It's a scary world out there, and I hate to break it to you, but there's a lot of bad people out there that want to do bad things to people. So be safe, use your common sense, and if it doesn't feel right, yell, scream, do something. Just don't become a victim. Next on the docket, a pastor pled guilty. For what, you may say, Scott? Well, the uh, Baptist minister in Louisiana pled guilty to stealing, get this, $900,000 from his church its rental properties, and a charter school, allegedly using um, the scheme that he had come up with to defraud his parishioners 
of their donations and deceive tenants and educators, according to the Department of Justice. Federal prosecutors said that the minister, Reverend Charles Southall III, who wields far-reaching influence as the head pastor for the First Emmanuel Baptist Churches in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, where elected officials and police chiefs have been known to worship, pled guilty to money laundering charges on Tuesday in U.S. District Court in the Eastern District of Louisiana. In total, the Justice Department said in the news release that South Hall obtained approximately $889,565.86. That's a lot of money through his alleged fraudulent scheme. Now, Mr. Southall, who's 64, has been the executive pastor at the First Emmanuel Baptist for more than three decades, and he has agreed to pay the $687,000 to the First Emmanuel, $85,000 to Spirit of Excellence, the charter school, and about $110,000 to others who were victimized. He will face a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison and up to $250,000 when he is sentenced by the judge on January 17th. It's good to know. It's good to know that um, being a minister uh, pays so well uh, that they can uh, basically give all the money back. That's a good thing, I guess. But a crime has still been committed. Just like if somebody steals your car, without, which means taking it without your permission, even if they wash it and they bring it back in the same shape, fuel it up, guess what? It's still a theft. They took it without legal permission or justification. Just because you get it returned doesn't take away all the damage. Next on the docket, more information coming out on the Alex Murdoch matter. Now, Alex Murdoch waited apparently an hour to call 911 after allegedly shooting his wife and son, and apparently was caught on camera at the murder scene, according to uh, new evidence that prosecutors say will seal his guilt. Now, Alec Murdoch is accused of uh, murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul, at the family's uh, little hunting lodge in South Carolina last June. He is uh, preparing for trial and is facing 80 separate charges for allegedly stealing millions of dollars from his own law firm and the family of the late housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield. Now, Mr. Smith is the man he is also accused of hiring to shoot him in the back of the head in a failed attempted life insurance scam, and Mr. Murdoch wanted to stage his own murder to secure a life insurance payout for his only surviving son, Buster. Well, for the first time in court yesterday, prosecutors described the evidence that they said nails Mr. Murdoch to the scene of the crime when it happened. Prosecutors say they have video evidence of him arriving at the property at 8.44 p.m., then was filmed firing up his car and leaving at 9.06 p.m. It took another hour for him to call 911 to report that his wife and his son were deceased. The prosecution now did not clarify at the hearing if Mr. Murdoch returned to the property to make the call or if video showed anyone else arriving at the scene between 9.06 p.m. and 10 p.m. when the call was first made. Now, Mr. Murdoch attorneys insist he is not guilty of these murders, and they allege, Mr. Murdoch attorneys allege, that it was Curtis Eddie Smith, the distant cousin and would-be hitman that did the job. They are yet to present any evidence that Smith was at the home on the night of the murders, but they say the fact that he failed a polygraph test about the killings implicates him. We've talked about polygraph tests. They're garbage. They're just a tool of interrogation. They're inadmissible. And 
I think that filing was done just to put an alternate suspect out there to make those potential jurors think, hey, what about this Smith guy? Well, Mr. Murdoch's defense has proposed the theory that Smith killed Maggie and Paul in a panic after discovering an illicit affair between Maggie and an unnamed groundskeeper. Now, in court filings, prosecutors said that the theory was not only untrue, but salacious and insulting to the memory of Mr. Murdoch's late wife's memory. They contend that Mr. Murdoch killed his wife and son after swindling millions of dollars and all but losing the family fortune. The Murdoch family had been a pillar of the community in the low country for many previous generations, and uh, most had served in uh, local politics as the prosecutors. Well, maybe pillars? I don't know about that. But they served as uh, prosecutors. Now, before she was murdered, Maggie had uh, apparently been left red-faced after writing checks for a charity luncheon that later bounced. And that's when she started asking questions about, hey, where's all our money? Because we're rich, right? Oh, turns out maybe not so much. Lots of other things going on as well. Obviously, the uh, death of Mallory Beach as well certainly uh, may have contributed to young Paul's demise. We'll continue to follow that case, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be big. Next on the docket, Alec Baldwin. That's right. It's been one year as of today when Alex Baldwin shot Helena Hutchins, ultimately killing her. Well, the prosecutors tasked with bringing charges against Alec Baldwin, possibly, in regards to the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins last year, has stated that she is committed to pursuing justice for the victims and warned, quote, no one is above the law, end quote. It just moves a little slower, apparently, if you're a celebrity. As I noted, today marks the one-year anniversary of uh, Miss Hutchins' death. Uh, she was obviously uh, shot dead by Alec Baldwin in a fatal uh, accident there on the set of Rust. To date, no one has been charged or even arrested in the killing, despite a year of legal back and forth, some public feuding and uh, civil lawsuits. And today, the district attorney made a statement that she is still waiting for the sheriff's report into the shooting. And on the anniversary of the tragedy of the Rust film set in Santa Fe, the district attorney remains committed to pursuing justice for the victims and getting answers for the community. She can only decide when she has that, the report, but um, no one's quite sure why it is taking so long. I'm assuming if this were just you and me, that they would um, be a little more expeditious in uh, getting that report done. Now, bottom line is whether Mr. Baldwin is charged or not charged should know uh, what's going to take place sooner rather than later. Letting people kind of hang out there in the wind, not knowing whether they're gonna be charged or not charged is frankly worse than being charged. At least you can deal with the charges at that point and you can make decisions. Now, Mr. Baldwin, who maintains it was an accident and that no one was responsible for it, uh, did not uh, comment on the anniversary today. He insists that he did not pull the trigger, claiming instead that the fatal gunshot was uh, tragically loaded with live rounds instead of bullets uh, that fired uh, blanks and it fired on its own. Now, we've debunked that in uh, previous videos. I brought you in an uh, example of a firearm of the same vintage and period and um, it wouldn't just go off on its own. And that's what the FBI report said as well, but apparently it's having its trouble making it away from the FBI to the sheriff to the district attorney. We will wait and see, 
It's unclear what's the holdup in this entire case. Next on the docket, the nonsense of Daryl Brooks' trial is hopefully coming to an end. After the state rested its case on Thursday, the Waukesha prayed attacked suspect Daryl Brooks delivered his opening statement. He acknowledged that people um, died at the Christmas parade last year, but he denied that it was planned or intentional. He says, quote, you won't hear me try to argue facts, he told the jurors. The fact is this incident is very tragic. Very tragic, he said, and that's not lost on me. Now, Mr. Brooks is obviously representing himself against six counts of first-degree intentional homicide, which uh, Wisconsin's highest murder charge and multiple other counts. Uh, the entire list of counts is 83 charges long. Um, he chose to deliver an opening statement after the state concluded its case in chief, which the defense always has the right to do. Normally, though, the defense will make a statement up front because you want to put your theory out there for the uh, jury to consider while the evidence is being presented by the prosecution. Since this was Mr. Brooks' first trial, he maybe didn't know that. Now, Mr. Brooks did say that there were lots of people and families healing on both sides. Obviously, six people died uh, when a driver, as Brooks alleged by the prosecution, rammed a red SUV through the Waukesha Christmas parade on November 21st, and dozens were injured. Authorities said Brooks had been fleeing after abusing and harassing his ex-girlfriend, Erica Patterson, often, often sounding emotional and wiping his eyes during his statement. Now, Brooks claimed he had prepared no remarks, but chose instead to speak from the heart. He said that the only one side of the story had been told for roughly a year. He says there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of ridicule. Brooks fired his attorneys shortly before trial and decided to represent himself. And he is a self-professed sovereign citizen. He suggested the prosecutors couldn't bring charges against him because the state of Wisconsin is not a flesh and blood person. Well, needless to say, the judge dispensed of that legal rubbish quite quickly, and uh, Mr. Brooks insisted on bringing them up. He even attempted to call the state itself as a first witness. Prosecutors objected to that move. The judge agreed. He also unsuccessfully attempted to persuade the judge to toss the case against him at the end of the prosecution's case in chief, which is not uncommon at all. The so-called sovereign citizen asserts that the government holds no true legal sway over them because they, not the government, are the sovereign. After failing to call the state itself to testify, Mr. Brooks called Patterson's friend, the girlfriend's, Ms. Patterson, uh, Nicholas Kirby. Sounding more like a prosecution witness and definitely not on Brooks' side, Kirby testified that Patterson had shown him Brooks' rap sheet and picture the week before the parade attack occurred. Kirby said Patterson planned to meet Mr. Brooks on November 21st, but he warned her that the meetup was a bad idea. Kirby said he was Patterson's mutual friend, Corey Runkle, and Runkle saw Patterson in Brooks' red SUV first. Kirby said he heard Patterson and asked a nearby police officer for help. Prosecutors previously called Runkle to testify. Authorities say Brooks eventually fled the scene alone in his SUV. Hopefully that'll be over soon and uh, some justice for the family. Quick update on the House of Horror story we brought you yesterday. The two 16-year-old teens held captive in Texas by their mother made their daring escape after the boy hid the key to their handcuffs in the mouth and waited for their mother and her boyfriend to fall asleep.
The severely malnourished teenage girl and boy have already told how they and their siblings had been starved, beaten, handcuffed, kept naked, and forced to eat their own excrement. Court documents have now revealed that the boy held the key in his mouth and waited for the mother, Zykira Duncan, and the boyfriend, Jova Terrell, to fall asleep. The children also alleged that they were whipped with electrical cords, beaten with a metal rod, and made to drink bleach as a punishment. They said they had to drink water from a supply valve in the washing machine and that their mother would force them to take up to two dozen Benadryls in order to get to sleep. The children remain hospitalized in the care of protective custody. And finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Well, four of them, okay? Four women are facing three counts each of felony child abuse. Look at this video. One of the women in a horror mask terrifies the little kids who look like they're, what, three or four years old? The kids understandably lose it, screaming and crying. Another daycare worker is facing two misdemeanor charges for failure to report the abuse and simple assault. All the employees were fired by the daycare owner. Should they have been hired in the first place? I don't know. Uh, what were they thinking? Seriously? I mean, I don't know, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, we bring it to you. You can decide if it's correct or not, but I don't know. They're dumb criminals for the day. All right. Thanks for watching. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next time on Crime Talk.